Acts chapter 9 is where we are at, beginning in verse 20. Are you awake for service? I'd say so. Come on. Hey, we're going to be, we're going to read, we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive into it. That sound good? Now, um, my son, my nine-month-old son, ripped out my page in my Bible, so I'm going to read it like this, okay? Uh, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, this is God's word, and it says, immediately, everyone say immediately, he, speaking of Saul, preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bowed to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, once again, we want to come before you and we want to simply recognize that you're here, that you're among us. Your word says, when two more gathered in your name, you are presently here among us. You say that you inhabit the praises of your people. You say that you have made us your dwelling place, your living temple. And so, Jesus, we simply want to acknowledge that you are with us this morning. We want to acknowledge that your word is living and powerful, and we ask that you would speak to us this morning. I pray if there's anybody in this room that knows about you but doesn't know you personally, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. And I pray for the many of those this morning that may just kind of be confused with what you're doing in their life. Jesus, would you bring comfort to them? And in Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. Have you ever asked the question before, God, what are you doing? Even in the last 24 hours, uh, there was a couple of events that I asked that question. Yesterday, I got into my car and the igni- turned the ignition, the car wouldn't start. So I popped open the hood, trying to figure out the battery said, what do I see in there? I see a mouse. Now, if you've been around at Calvary Vista for a while, you'd remember that this is not the first time I've had rats in my car. So I was totally bummed. I've got a dead battery. I've got the mouse situation. Then we are going to sleep, and it, we had a pretty great day with the kids, my wife and I. But all throughout the night, my nine-month-old son, Banks, a little terror that took my Bible apart. Uh, we're praying for his salvation. He was crying all night long. I mean, it was just kind of, he's probably teething, but I mean, he was obviously in pain. It was just kind of this question, God, what are you doing? Like, I got to preach tomorrow. Like, I I need some sleep. Like, out of all the nights, this is the night he's crying all night long. And then I'm studying this morning. I get a text from Pastor Aaron, a picture of our entrance, and the window is broken through. And so our first thing that we do here this morning is we're vacuuming up all the pieces of glass in the lobby and asking the question, God, what are you doing? Now, these are kind of minor things, but I'm sure that you've asked that question. God, what are you doing? Where are you? What are you doing with my life right now? Maybe like me, you're raising toddlers. You're tired and overwhelmed, and you're like, God, what are you doing? This is not what I imagined it to be. Maybe in your marriage, you're struggling. You're asking, God, what are you doing? Maybe you're raising teenagers, and you're equally as overwhelmed and discouraged, confused, asking yourself, God, what are you doing? Maybe you've just received that diagnosis, or maybe it was a family or a friend, and you're asking the question, God, what are you doing? Maybe you're retired, and you're just asking the question, God, what are you doing with my life now? 
This question comes all the time. God, what are you doing? No doubt Saul of Tarsus was asking this question here in Acts chapter 9. Guaranteed he's asking the question, God, what are you doing? And these 10 verses we're going to cover this morning, we're actually going to span 17 years of Saul's life. Now, Saul would become Paul the Apostle, who would write tons of books in the New Testament. He's, besides Jesus, he's probably changed the course of history more than anybody else who's ever lived. I mean, Saul would become Paul, and he'd become a big deal. But in these 10 verses, there are 17 years that are going by, where no doubt Saul is asking the question, God, what in the world are you doing? 17 years that seemed maybe insignificant, where he felt bypassed asking this question. What we're going to see this morning as we look into Saul's life is this, that God operates in seasons. The book of Ecclesiastes says there's a season for this and there's a season for that. God operates in seasons. How many of you have discovered that by now? There's different seasons in our walk with Jesus. In fact, think of creation. All of creation is on a cycle of seasons. In order to get to the beauty of summer, we got to go through the harshness of winter. In order for the seed to grow and produce plant, there's got to be a season of being buried. Life is full of different seasons. God operates in seasons. And when we discover the season that we're in, we're given clarity to what God is doing. The title of the message this morning is Trust his process. That in the midst of these seasons, we need to continue to trust his process. That God is for you, not against you. That he is with you through these different seasons. Now, Saul's seasons that we're going to look at this morning, is really like a, a beautiful picture of every season that we go through. It's the seasons of spiritual growth. We're going to look at these three stages or three, three seasons of spiritual growth. Number one, we're going to see that Saul sees. Number two, that Saul is sanctified. He goes from the season of seeing to a season of sanctification. And then three, to a season of sending. Are you with me? Are you ready? Okay, season number one. This is the season of seeing. Now, we covered this a couple weeks ago. Saul quite literally saw Jesus. He had an encounter that changed his life. Saul the persecutor, Saul the Pharisee, Saul the zealot, the one breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, was met by the Lord on the road to Damascus, and everything changed. The scales were taken off of his eyes, and he sees Jesus for the same time. And right there you can pause and enter into the story. Because just as Saul had this moment of conversion, this moment of seeing, every true follower of Jesus has a moment like Saul's. The moment where their eyes are opened and they see Jesus for the first time. Now, this first season, the season of seeing, always includes this. It includes revelation. Everyone say revelation. This was Saul's revelation. We read it in Acts 9, verses 3 through 5. It says, As he journeyed, Saul came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? 
For Saul, this was the moment of revelation. It was an encounter with Jesus that changed the course of Saul's life. Now, we know that God was working in Saul's life prior to this moment. So Jesus would say to Saul, 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 why are you kicking against the goats? We know that Saul was present at the stoning of Stephen's death. God had been working in Saul's life, but this was the moment. This was the climactic event where he goes from death to life, from being blind to being able to see. And every follower of Jesus has a moment like this. Now, in fact, I would say this is what makes Christianity distinct from almost any other worldview, thought, social club, anything else that you can think of. This idea of an encounter, of revelation, is what makes Christianity distinct. Why? Because not only is there a mountain of evidence that supports the claims that Jesus rose again, there's mountains of evidence But the thing is, is that there have been millions of claims of people who have said that they have encountered the living Jesus. I mean, that's the big question all of this comes down to as we sit here on a Sunday morning worshiping Jesus. Is he really alive today? Did he really rise from the grave? Is he really living? Is he resurrected? Well, yes, encounters prove that. It's not only the evidence. Now, I'm all about Lee Strobel, the case for Christ. If you've never seen that movie, I'm all about that apologetic. But the thing that changes the course of somebody's life is an encounter with the living Jesus. When we taste and we see that the Lord is good, every evidence of the resurrection of Jesus should lead to an encounter with Jesus. Every explanation of Jesus should lead to an encounter with Jesus because we believe that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. Amen? Amen. This is what changes the course of people's lives. It's revelation. It's encounter. Now think of this for a moment. Think of your life. What have been the major moments in your life? Was it a book that explained the evidence of something, of what school to go to, of who to marry? I mean, think about this for a second. When you think of that special someone, did you get married to someone simply based on the evidence displayed through social media or a dating app or some other kind of preference, maybe a recommendation from a friend? Did you make the decision to marry someone based on that evidence? Most of you probably know, right? What happened? You saw, you heard, but then what did you do? You encountered that person. Maybe you're planning to go to school. Maybe you're planning to marry somebody else. But then you met the one. And the one changed the course of your life. It wasn't evidence. It was an encounter. And this was the case for Saul. This is the case for every follower of Jesus. It's an encounter with Jesus that changes your life. See, this is what I'm really all about, especially in leading the youth ministry here. It's not just evidence I want to lay out to all of our students. I don't want them simply to see all the evidence of Jesus. I want them to encounter Jesus. Because I know if they taste and see that the Lord is good, then their life will be marked and changed forever. You see, an encounter is what changes us from simply believing in Jesus to knowing by experience That Jesus is real and Jesus is alive. So this is season one. It's a season of seeing. Somehow God initiates. He reveals himself. He, he, He pulls back the curtains behind our eyes so that we can see him clearly. And in this season of seeing, you know that someone has really experienced this revelation because it always elicits a response. Okay, that's the second part of this season. There's always a response attached to it. 
We see this in the life of Saul. Read with me again verse 20. It says, immediately. Everyone say immediately. Immediately Saul preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Immediately, Saul responds to this encounter. Saul instantly goes into the Jewish synagogues, proving that Jesus is the Son of God. Now notice this. The last words of Saul prior to his conversion was, Who are you, Lord? And the first words after his encounter was, Jesus is the Son of God. This is the only time in the book of Acts that Jesus is referenced as the Son of God. This phrase, Son of God, is the same term that Jesus referenced himself the morning of his crucifixion. In fact, it was this term that labeled Jesus as a blasphemer by the Jews. Here, as Saul immediately goes on preaching that Jesus is the Son of God, this is warranting a death wish on himself. Yet he does it unapologetically. Why? Because he's encountered Jesus. He's tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You see, the revelation of seeing and knowing Jesus almost always begins with a sense of passion and just newness, novelty. Passion is fueling the life of Saul here. And I want you to pause and think about your own life. I mean, how many of you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good? How many of you remember that moment when you went from death to life, from being blind to being able to see? What did it elicit? It elicited a response. Everything was new. Like you were just, the scriptures came alive to you. Everything was fresh. You're hearing all these words and you're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And you're just enthralled with the person of Jesus. I mean, Jesus refers to himself as, as the first love and to the letter um, to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. And that's really what it's like. It's like a honeymoon season with Jesus where there's passion, where there's excitement. But if you're anything like anybody else, that season doesn't stay there forever. I mean, how many of you are married in the room this morning? Does the honeymoon season last? No, it doesn't. It doesn't last. Things begin to change. Over time, passion begins to wane. The excitement begins to wear off. They say familiarity breeds contempt for a reason. And certainly that can be the case in our relationship with Jesus. We become over familiar with him. Slowly, things in our life begin to shift. Devotion creeps into obligation. Life becomes hard. The prayers run dry. The motivation barely lingers. And you begin to ask the question, God, what are you doing? Where are you? What's wrong with me? Why don't I feel the same way that I did there at the beginning? But that's the thing. That's only the first season in this life of spiritual growth. The season of seeing is the honeymoon season. It's a mountaintop experience. But how many of you know at the mountain, things don't really grow there. Think about that. On the top of a mountain, on Mount Everest, is there much life? No, there's wonder, there's excitement, there's awe, but eventually you got to come down the mountain. And you come down into the valley. The honeymoon season fades away, and this leads us to season two. This is the season of sanctification. 
This word sanctified simply means to be set apart. We're being set apart into the image of Jesus. And this is always the season following the honeymoon season. The season that no one talks about. When you come back from the honeymoon and you realize that you totally come from two different worlds, you maybe begin to argue and bicker a little bit. Things begin to change. How do you know that you're in this season? The season of sanctification. Well, the season of sanctification always involves, number one, it involves solitude. Here in your Bible, we see that Saul immediately goes from seeing Jesus, he elicits a response, he's immediately going to all of the synagogues he's preaching. But in between verses 22 and 23 in your Bible, there is a three-year gap. A three-year gap that Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, he just skims over. Paul actually gives us insight of what was happening there in Galatians chapter 1. It'll be on the screen. It says this. Saul, who later became Paul, wrote, I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So in between verses 22 and 23 is a three-year gap where Saul goes into the desert of Arabia in solitude. In isolation. And this is a fitting picture, the desert of Arabia For what the season of sanctification feels like. You're asking yourself, what's wrong with me? I feel so dry. It's actually a part of the process. Every great man and woman of God goes through a season of solitude in the desert, in the valley place. Moses spent 40 years in the desert by himself. He then would go back to Egypt and then he would lead the Israelites into the wilderness for another 40 years. Elijah, when he fled from Jezebel, spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. Jesus himself spent 40 days and nights in the desert. Jacob spent years in the desert running from Esau. David spent years in the desert running from King Saul. Every great man, woman, person of God goes through a dry season. It's actually a part of the process. Because in the dry season, God is bringing down the roots of our faith. We're going from a process of seeing him to now, hold on, where is he? And he's exercising the muscle of faith. We're even in the midst where we're not totally seeing him and hearing him. We, by faith, are growing. It's been said that uh, a person whose faith has not been tested is someone who cannot be trusted. Every person goes through a testing period. That's the desert period. And guess what? It usually happens in solitude. When you feel all alone. You're asking, where's my family? Where's my friends? Where's the church? Why is it that I come to church and I feel alone every single week? Well, maybe, just maybe, Jesus himself is leading you into the wilderness. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be alone. Maybe the Spirit's leading you into the wilderness. Why? Because he wants to do a work in you. Tim Keller, he just passed away this week, one of my favorite pastor theologians. He said this of the solitude season. He says, if we give priority to the outer life, our inner life will be dark and scary. We will not know what to do with solitude. We'll be deeply uncomfortable with self-examination. We'll have an increasingly short attention span for any kind of reflection. Even more seriously, our lives will lack integrity. Outwardly, we will need to project confidence, spiritual and emotional health and wholeness, while inwardly, we may be filled with self-doubts, anxieties, self-pity, and hold grudges. 
Why does Jesus bring us into this place of solitude, into the desert season? Because he wants to work in the inner life. One of the things we're learning in our core theology class on Wednesday nights is that according to the Bible, the greatest opposition, the greatest threat, the greatest problem in the world is not external, but internal. It's a sin that lives within us. Now, those of us that go from the season of seeing, we're, we're justified, we're declared righteous, we go from death to life. But in the season of sanctification, what Jesus is doing is he's presently working out and saving us from ourself. How do you know you've got problems? Jesus takes us away into the desert to deal with ourselves. He's purging out The inner life, he's healing us from the inside out. It's in the wilderness, our inner life, our character is both tested and formed. This was the case for David. This was the case for Moses. This was the case for Elijah. Even Jesus in the wilderness, his character was tested. You see, we go and Jesus leads us into the wilderness to test our character, to realize that we're actually not made of as much as we thought we were. It's while we're all alone in the wilderness with Jesus, we realize the shallowness and the inadequacies of our own life. Jesus said this in John 17, verse 17. He says, as he's praying, sanctify them. He's speaking of the disciples. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. What does Jesus do in the season of solitude in the desert? He sanctifies us by truth. The truth of who God is and the truth of who we are. And if you read the Bible, then the truth of who we are isn't really a pretty picture. The truth of who we are is that we're weak, that we're selfish, that we're self-centered. We think we're so free and in control of our lives, but really our own emotions and desires, our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all else. Who can know it? So this season of sanctification and solitude is Jesus is showing us what we're made of. And that we're really not made of much. And then he shows us how our deep need for him. That we're way worse than we ever expected. But that he's far greater and gracious than we could ever hope. That's what he teaches us in the season of solitude. The season of sanctification. You see, the season of solitude will always lead to self-examination. We'll pray a prayer similar to David's when he said in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. When is the last time you've really examined your inner life? Where you've actually given access, Jesus access into the dark, ugly areas of your life. See, the beauty of what we call the gospel, the beauty of the good news, the beauty of the grace of God is that he, when he's allowed access into the ugliest parts of our lives, he does the cleaning. That's the idea of sanctification. You don't have to. You don't have to get it all together. No, Jesus meets us where we're at, but he doesn't leave us where he finds us. He changes us from the inside out. This happens in the season of solitude. But also in the season of sanctification, are you ready for this? It also involves suffering. Good news. (laughs) Welcome to church. It involves suffering. And I don't mean to make it lighthearted because suffering's real. In Acts 9 verse 16, Jesus actually promises us all that he must suffer for my namesake. 
then that promise of suffering actually extends to us because Jesus says this in John 16, verse 33. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He promises that in this world we'll have tribulation, we'll have hardship, we will experience suffering. Take heart because he's overcome the world. He's with us in the midst of it. The first form of suffering for Saul came through external opposition. Read with me verses 23 through 25. After this three years, it says, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. The first form of suffering came through external opposition. This is the same city where three years earlier that had granted Saul permission to persecute Christians. Now he was the persecuted. Some of you remember this season in your own life. Where you have the season of seeing, it's all exciting, then you go through the difficult mess and you're like, why in the world is it so hard? What's going on? It feels like the world's against me. Maybe some of you are in that season right now. Let me tell you, it's a part of the process. It's a part of the process that Jesus is showing us that he's greater, that he's able to overcome the world. Maybe for you right now, the external opposition is coming through your friends, your family, your boss, your coworkers. Whatever it is, every follower of Jesus experiences opposition. Again, another quote, just to honor the life and legacy of Tim Keller. He said this, Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you'll become more like him. The gospel does not promise you better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. Not simply circumstances, but a better life. And that happens in suffering. See, in the process of suffering, Jesus transforms us into his image. He does a work from the inside out. Now, this is a thing, though. The Bible doesn't try to tie a pretty bow on suffering and call it good. It doesn't attempt to find a silver lining in every problem. In fact, Paul would reference this exact situation where he's fleeing Damascus in a basket. He would reference this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he references it as a moment of weakness, of humiliation, and of trouble. He calls it what it is. It's difficult. It is, in fact, suffering. See, Jesus himself does this with suffering. Jesus doesn't attempt to call suffering good. No, that's not the idea of Christianity's approach to suffering. It's not to call it good. No, the Bible tells us the story of a God who's not distant from suffering, He's not negligent to suffering, and he's not a God who tries to gloss over suffering. No, the Bible's story of suffering is the reality that God himself plunged into the horrors of suffering. Did Jesus say that the cross was something great? No, it was a bloody horrific mess. Jesus enters into the horrors of suffering to redeem suffering, to bring beauty from ashes. See, some of the problems of today is that people and the culture tells us to avoid suffering. Do everything you can to numb yourself from suffering, ignore it, escape it. Religion, and when I say religion, I mean other religions and moralism, usually blames yourself for suffering. You did bad, therefore bad happens to you. It's the idea of karma. 
Marxism always blames suffering on someone else. Atheism doesn't have an answer for suffering. So it blames it on God, the God who they don't believe exists. But the Bible has this very real picture of suffering that it's absolutely horrific. And that Jesus doesn't try to avoid suffering, but he enters into suffering. He quite literally left the riches of heaven to put on the rags of this world to enter into suffering. He who knew no sin became sin that we would become the righteousness of God. And even today, he enters into the suffering of your life with you. You might feel like he's not with you. You might feel like he's abandoned you. But in reality, he is in the midst of the suffering with you. He sympathizes with all our weaknesses. This is who he is. Some of you just needed to come to church today to be reminded that Jesus is with you through the valley of the shadow of death. That you don't have to fear no evil because he is with you. But it's because Jesus enters into suffering and redeems suffering that the Apostle Paul could say this in Romans chapter 5. He says that we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, it's in the midst of suffering that we get to suffer with God. That God is able to buy back the years of your suffering. This is the good news this morning. God does not waste your suffering. We sang that in that song. Canvas in the clay. No time is wasted. God doesn't, he doesn't waste your suffering. He enters into it. Brings purpose from pain. This is what he does. This is what he's doing in Saul's life. And this is what he's able to do in your life. But suffering, how many of you know, it doesn't only come from external opposition. It also comes from internal opposition. Read with me verses 26 to 28. It says, when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they're all afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. But good old Barney, Barnabas, took him and brought him to the apostles. He declared to them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and that he'd spoken to them, how he'd preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. You don't blame the disciples, this internal opposition that Saul's experiencing. And the last time Saul was in Jerusalem, he was consenting to the death of Stephen. Last time he was in Jerusalem, he was the persecutor of the way. But now, after his encounter, after a season of seeing, in the midst of the season of sanctification, he actually journeys to Jerusalem searching for the apostles. Now imagine for yourself being Saul. After three years of solitude and isolation, to return on the scene in Damascus only to have to be escaped through a basket, now he's searching for companionship in the apostles. And he shows up in Jerusalem. They don't want anything to do with him either. I mean, right there, we just have to acknowledge that in the season of sanctification, that sometimes opposition comes from within the church. And this is where a lot of people bow out. Listen, you don't have to raise your hand, but I would uh, journey to believe most of you have experienced hurt from the church. We say that sheep bite for a reason. I don't need to tell you that. Internal opposition happens all the time. Many people, there's an entire movement known as ex-evangelicals. It's sweeping the church. People are leaving the church because of church hurt. 
And it's real. It's difficult. But it's also to be expected. If you haven't been hurt by someone in the church, you will be. Why? Because the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. As Pastor Rob reminds us every single week almost, this is a family. It's a beautiful one, but a dysfunctional one. And you're probably going to be hurt. Why? Because hurt people come through these doors every single week. We're all hurt. We're all broken. We're all weak. And we hurt other people. But this is the thing. Wherever there's someone that excludes you or hurts you in the church, Jesus is always with you and he will always send a Barnabas. He'll always send an encourager. This is what happens to Saul. The apostles don't want anything to do with him. So what does God do? He, he shows that he's with him through the hands of Barney. Not the kid's character, but Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He's with Saul. He brings him. He defends Saul. He advocates for Saul. And if you stick around long enough, God will bring a Barnabas in your life. God will begin to defend you and he will be your advocate and he'll stand for you through the hands in the life of somebody else. Don't bow out too quick. He'll send a Barnabas and that's what happens. Saul ends up meeting with Peter. We read in Galatians chapter 2, he meets with Peter and, and things are being able to reconcile. Why? Because of Barnabas. This is just a part of it. It's the season of sanctification. It's the season of sanctification. It always also involves, and we're almost done here, it involves sacrifice. Read with me verses 29 and 30. It says, And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. He's sent to Tarsus, and actually the scriptures tell us that he's in Tarsus for 14 years. Let me read this to you. Galatians chapter 1, I think it'll be on the screen. Saul, becoming Paul, gives his insight. He says, Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem and Barnabas and also took Titus with me. 14 years he goes away. And this is a sacrifice. Not only did Saul sacrifice his comfort and his reputation, but now he's sacrificing 14 years. I mean, think of you. Maybe you're in that place where you, you've gone through the season of seeing. You're in the season of sanctification. And you're like, God, when are you going to use me? I just want to be used by you. I'm ready. I'm ready to see the fruit in my life. Well, he always, part of the season of sanctification is sacrifice. Now, it might not be 14 years. I hope it's not. But maybe. This is Saul, no doubt. He wanted to be on the front lines. He wanted to go for it. I mean, we already see that this is in his makeup. He's ready. But now he has to sit for another 14 years. Wasn't three years good enough? Oh, God brings him to this place. He's sacrificing here. Saul, before he became Paul the somebody, for another 14 years, he saw the nobody. Why? Because it's in the season of sanctification that Jesus takes time. He's a lot more patient than we are. And this time isn't wasted. It's a necessary season. It's a season of pressing. It's a season of refining. It's a season of purifying. We live in a moment of fast food Christianity. A microwave version where we want to quote a Bible verse and all our problems go away instantly. 
We live in this fast food Christianity where we have this encounter with Jesus and we're like, hey, I want to be up front stage leading people in worship or whatever. I want to be used by God mightily. It's like, hey, that's not how it works. We go through a season of sanctification, a season of purifying. Alan Redpath said this. The salvation of a soul is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. It's okay. It's okay if God isn't doing this grand thing in your life right now. Maybe you just need to hear that this morning. It's okay. It's okay if, you know, you're, you're, you're trying your best to live for Jesus, but you feel a little bit dry. You feel a little bit beat up. You're like, what in the world are you doing, God? Trust his process. He's working in ways that you don't know. This is the season of sanctification, and it will finally lead us to season three, which is the season of sending. We'll always lead to that. And we'll end up in the season of sending both equipped and empowered. Because, see, in the season of seeing, God does a work for us. In the season of seeing, God does a work for us. Okay, so he saves us. He rescues us. He delivers us. He's doing a work for us. In the season of sanctification, he does a work in us. He does a work in us. And then in the season of sending, he does a work through us. But in order to, for him to do a work through us, we have to go through the season of sanctification so we'll be equipped and empowered by his spirit. Because it's in the season of sanctification we realize that we're weak and we're in need of his strength. This is what Saul would have to say of his season of sanctification in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we're hard pressed on every side but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Are you feeling pressed in the season of sanctification this morning? You will not be crushed. Are you feeling perplexed? Are you confused? You're you're not going to go into despair. Jesus is with you. He's going to lead you through it. You're going to come out the other side equipped. You're going to come out the other side empowered because in our weakness, he is strong. It's in the pressing. He's making new wine. This is what he's doing. Say W. Tozer who said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Listen, it's okay. It's okay to go through the season of pain. It's necessary. Because Jesus is forming you into his image. So, in conclusion today, I'll invite the band to come back up. What season are you in? Have you seen Jesus? Have you gone through the season of seeing? Has he revealed himself to you? Are you, are you just caught up in the evidence and the explanation? Have you, have you encountered him yet? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? This morning can be that morning. You can taste and see that the Lord is good. He will reveal himself to you. Or are you in the season of sanctification, wondering where Jesus is at? Maybe you're all alone. Maybe you're suffering. And today you simply need to be reminded that you're not alone. That he is with you, that your pain will not be wasted, that you are not forgotten, that he is with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Or maybe you've been in the season of sending and, and God's doing a work through you. This is the thing I want you to see, though. 
that we call this a season for a reason. I did not mean to be so cheesy like that. Um, that's so cheesy. We call it a season for a reason, though, because it's not a linear cycle. Well, it's not linear. It's not a linear process of growth. Let me show you. You can put up the screen. It's a circular. It's a cyclical. It's a season because a season comes and then a season goes and then it comes back again. So maybe you're at the season of seeing and God's revealing himself to you this morning. Maybe you're in the season of sanctification. You're being pressed. Maybe you're in the season of sending. God sent you. But maybe you've gone through this process and you're like, is this it? Like I've done it all. Oh, my friend. There's so much more. It's not a checkbox where you check off each season. If you've been at the season of sending and you feel like you're, you're dry, you feel like maybe you've messed up, maybe you've failed, God's not done with you. He will invite you into a new season of seeing. Well, he'll give you fresh revelation of who he is. And that fresh revelation of who he is will, will send you into another season of sanctification, realizing who you're not. And he'll do a new inner work through you. And then he'll use that for his glory. And then you'll go through the sea again and again and again and again and again until he sends, off, sends us off into glory. Listen, this is the beauty. And you need to trust his process. Because he's producing something beautiful in you. Do you believe it, church? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you. That you don't leave us or forsake us, but that you are, in fact, with us. Right now, I really simply want to pray for those that are going through this pressing, this refining, this purifying. Would you comfort them? The enemy's been lying to them that they're not enough, that you've left them, that they're too far gone. Would, Would you just encourage them, Jesus, that you're right there with them? That you're desiring to do a beautiful work in and through them. Father, we ask that you would have your way this morning as we move into a time of response. We love you. We praise you. We welcome you here. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do as we respond, really since the Lord gave me these, these two kind of prompts. Number one, I want to invite some of you to taste and see that the Lord is good for the very first time this morning. There's some of you in here this morning, like maybe Saul, you've, you've, you've heard about Jesus, you've seen some evidence of Jesus, but this morning, Jesus wants to reveal himself to you personally. How does he do that? He does that through the message of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul would say, That the power of God into salvation is the gospel and that it reveals the righteousness of Jesus. What does that mean? The gospel is what we call the good news. The gospel tells us that God is in fact alive and he's working in your life right now. That Jesus loves you, that he created you, that you're designed by God and you're designed for God. But the gospel also tells us that we've rebelled against him. That we're unrighteous, that we've failed. That we've messed up. Now, I don't need to tell you that, though. You know you've messed up. You can try to compare yourself to everybody else that's a little bit worse than you to make yourself feel better. But the reality is, when you look in the mirror, you know that you failed and you messed up. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus left heaven and came to earth to live the perfect life you couldn't. And he went to the cross. Why? 
Because your failure, your sin demands punishment. If God's just, then you deserve a punishment. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But because of God's love for you, he died on the cross for you. As I mentioned earlier, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin, your sin, your mess, your failures, and he died for you. And he did it out of love. Not on your best day, but on your worst day. He died on the cross for you. He was buried in a grave and he rose again victoriously. He's alive today. And how do you know? You know because the spirit of God is convicting you. He's convincing you of the truth that Jesus is real and that he loves you right now.